This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome. It's episode 474 of IAQ Radio. It's Friday, August 25th, 2017. And this week, we look forward to talking to Dr. Paul Wargaki for the hour. He's calling in from the uh, Technical Institute of uh, Technical University of Denmark. We're going to talk about CO2 and whether it's a pollutant or merely an index for indoor air quality. Looking forward to a great show with Dr. Wargaki. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com all right let's turn it over to the z-man for today's iaq radio trivia question and now you can win a cool prize it's time for the iaq radio trivia question be the first to correctly answer simply email your answer to c zlotnick at cs.com or if listening live just text your answer from your computer and now here's the z-man with this week's iaq radio trivia question Hello, everybody. Congratulations to John Lapotere of Florida IQ Solutions, Winter Springs, Florida, who answered the prior trivia question, correctly identifying Robert Koch as the father of modern bacteriology and winner of a Nobel Prize. The IQ radio trivia question for today, Friday, August 25th, 2017, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's two-part trivia question. Name the first gas to be distinguished from ordinary air and the scientist who discovered it. Back to you, Joe. Okay, today's guest is Dr. Paul Wargaki. He's an associate professor professor at the Technical University of Denmark, a past president of the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, past chair of the ASHRAE Environmental Health Committee, vice president of Indoor Air 2008, and a list, if I went over here, of uh, papers and uh, positions that would take for the rest of the hour. So what we're going to do is just jump over and see, do we have you on the line, Powell? Oh, you can hear me now. Sorry, I, I was muted. Yes, I'm online. <laughs> Hello, Joe. Hello uh, to all the listeners. Great to have you. Sorry from about the distant the, Denmark. From distant. From yeah, this is great. We've had people from uh, let's see, Germany, Denmark, uh, Portugal, Great Britain, Australia. So it's an international crowd, and it's great to have you on. You know, I saw you speak um, at the IAQA conference in, uh, I guess that was like March of this year, and I, I was fascinated by the presentation you did. A lot of it was focused on CO2, carbon dioxide. Um, there's been a lot of recent interest in carbon dioxide. We, we made the title of the show, Is CO2 a Pollutant or Merely an Index for IAQ? But before we get into that, let's let's get into a little of your background. Um, how did you first start getting interested in indoor air quality issues? Uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, and thank you for the kind words. You know, uh, it's always to be an honor, you know, to be a plenary speaker. But, you know, it's a little bit of stress usually, you know, to come up with a good topic and then present it, uh, not only just fully presented, but also presented in a way that the audience will not fall asleep. So uh, hopefully uh, uh, our listeners will not fall asleep today when I speak. So coming back to your first uh, question is uh, actually, you know, 
it happened after nearly after I graduated as a student from the university. So my background is that I was educated in Poland, and towards the end of my studies, just just before the graduation, uh, I went to Denmark uh, for a short visit. Uh, it was a visit of a uh, few months, and this is where I met uh, Professor Fanga, who probably some of the listeners would know him from the the PMV PPD model for the thermal comfort, uh, but he was also known for many other you know inventions. Uh, uh, for the IAQ, among others, you know, he was one of the founders of the current, you know, ventilation rates that are in 62.1, ASHA 62.1. But nevertheless, in during my the course of the studies in Poland, uh, the Warsaw University of Technology, I was more interested in the heating, radiators, and all that stuff. And when I get, uh, when I went to Denmark. I got sort of fascinated by the research that was done by the institute there. Um, basically, I was doing a small project on the use of fragrances to mask the pollutants. So basically, you may think of, uh, you know, using a different play, uh, uh, odorants, you know, that could, uh, fragrances that could mask some uh, noxious or smelly pollutants, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, this cost, this actually got me interested in IAQ. I went back to Poland uh, after the a short stay and then returned in 93 for another short stay, uh, which actually uh, is still going on because uh, <laughs> I have never returned to Poland after my uh, coming in 93. And then I was involved uh, in many different projects related to IAQ. So you started out... Well, basically, uh, very very briefly, it's because, you know, the group and the people and, you know, fascination, the first fascination for the research that has been done, facilities available here, and a very nice, you know, uh, atmosphere and a um, sort of engagement in the topic. Well, tell us a little more about the Technical University of Denmark. What are the, you know, primary interests of studies... What type of degrees uh, do they specialize in? Yeah. Well, Technical University of Denmark is one of the largest technical universities in Scandinavia, if not the largest. You know, I'll try to, you know, I prepared for the interview, so I can tell you, you know, we are like more than 10,000 students, and uh, um, we have like uh, 1,500, uh, nearly 15, not 1,200 PhD students, about 5,000 staff. And uh, then we have, uh, you know, uh, let me see here, we have 19 departments, you know, five centers and five affiliated companies. So uh, we are pretty large. Mm-hmm. So this is a technical university. So the, 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 the science that we, uh, or maybe education that we promote here is actually uh, the um, Technical related, technically related. So you know everything that is related, you know, to the uh, mechanic, mechanical engineering, to chemistry, you know. But we have also the uh, space department, which is uh, related to you know studying the space issues, and then also the nanotechnology department, uh, chemistry department, and so on. So all, all those sciences that you know that are taught at the technical university. Probably we are very much uh, known for, of course, our group outside in the world, but also other groups are famous for doing some work on energy and uh, some work on uh, uh, bio, uh, biotechnology and so on. I see. And you, you started out studying fragrances, I guess, and, and how to cover up IAQ-related uh, Odors, what other areas of um, indoor air quality have you focused on over the years? Over the years, uh, I actually started with, you know, fragrances, and then my first real task was to develop the reference reference exposure for pollutants. So I was trying to simulate or, or try to create the artificial indoor air in a sense. So I was trying to combine 
different pollutants together that are found indoors uh, to basically replicate and create a sort of a reference exposure, reference gas for indoor air. Hmm. And that was one of the parts, one of the topics of my PhD. My actually PhD was a three part, so I was looking at this aspect. This was one of them, and I was looking at different mixtures. Uh, one of the mixture had 22 components, and the others were uh, less components, actually. But uh, we figured out that it's very, very difficult to do that. Um, uh, the reason is basically, you know, you, you have different mixtures of pollutants in those. And uh, not only, I mean, even if we um, identify major pollutants, they can be in different, you know, concentrations, mm-hmm. depending on uh, different uh, um, uh, environment. And then, you know, those, different combinations may elicit the different responses from people. So it, it was a sort of, you know, I would say very difficult task uh, or maybe impossible to realize, but nevertheless, we learned a lot about, uh, uh, about that. Okay. Then uh, one, an, another task was to look on um, how to combine ventilation requirements for different types of pollutants indoors. You know, you, you know, we have different sources of pollutants indoors, and we have sources, you know, from people, of human bioaffluents, we have building materials. At that time, we had also tobacco smoking and so on. And the question was, if we, if we define the ventilation for each group of pollutants, how should, what we should do with the um, ventilation requirements? Should we add those ventilation requirements, or we should ventilate for the most, you know, smelly or most other pollutants that has the highest concentration or the strongest source and so on and so on. And then towards the end of my work, I, um, I got a task to look at the effects of uh, pollutants on human cognitive performance, uh, basically on whether the indoor air pollution can have measurable effect on how we perform at work. And that's probably my my uh, my biggest interest, and has been a biggest interest uh, in the last, you know, fifteen or twenty years. And probably my name is mostly recognized uh, for this type of research. Uh, if you look through the literature, and uh, if you talk with people, but I have also other interests, uh, and uh, my major probably interest is related to uh, air quality. Um, and uh, uh, understanding the effects of exposures on humans, uh, on humans, and how we can mitigate uh, the, um, ex- the those negative effects that those exposures can produce. You know that kind of nicely rolls into the topic for today, which is some recent studies we've been seeing on you know CO2 and how it affects health and performance and. You gave a nice introduction to the history of CO2 during your presentation. Um, can you just kind of walk listeners through some of the early research on CO2, who did it, why they did it, and um, what up until fairly recently was you know, uh, the common, uh, I guess, what, what people thought about CO2 until you know, we've seen some changes here recently? Yes, let's first I think we should make sure that our listeners uh, understand that we are talking about the CO2 uh, indoors, not outdoors, because you know when we talk about a climate change, um, very often we talk about a CO2 emission, right? And then that is causing a climate change. So we are not talking about this CO2, we are talking about a CO2 that is indoors and is primarily generated uh, by us. Uh, it's a metabolite, uh, human metabolite. And of course, there are certain situations that CO2 is generated uh, through the process, uh, for example, in the beer production or maybe some other. other. But uh, basically, what we are talking about is the CO2 that is produced by humans. So, well, the, 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 uh, the, the, um, 
uh, the CO2 was discussed already in the 18th century, and uh, actually it was Lavoisier, uh, who was the father of gaseous, uh, gaseous uh, chemistry, and um, he actually recognized the CO2 and the oxygen and attributed all negative effects uh, to not to to the presence of uh, carbon dioxide, basically. Before Lavoisier, it was Mayo who actually observed or maybe attributed a negative effect that he he was seeing with animals to so-called igneo aerial particles, which were actually a carbon dioxide. So this was the first you know research on yeah, CO2 probably that was performed. And at that time, in the 18th century and later on, CO2 was considered to be a pollutant, or basically are causing the negative effect on humans. So all the um, negative effects that have been seen uh, in relation to the exposure were attributed to uh, CO2. But then later in the 19th century, Pettenkofer, the um, German hygienist uh, from Munich, a very well-known hygienist, and uh, actually, to be honest, uh, yeah, his uh, books uh, or whatever reports that he produced at that time are still valid, actually. Hmm. So he, um, he performed the research who showed, uh, which showed that it is not a CO2 that is responsible uh, for the effects that we see. He said that the corruption of the air is not caused solely by the carbon dioxide content. We, uh, uh, it's actually caused by the uh, emissions from humans, which he called, you know, human body odor or human bioeffluence. He considered the CO2 as an excellent marker of the pollutants that are emitted by humans in, in the situation when all the other pollutants are removed or avoided in those. And then... Um, so then, after that, the CO2 um, uh, be, be became a sort of an indicator of indoor air quality. And uh, 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 Pettenkofer suggested the level of CO2 of 1,000 ppm to be, um, to be a level uh, uh, above which we can expect the uh, negative or the unacceptable uh, air quality or perception with the, with the air quality, and uh, and uh, he uh, and then the CO2 uh, began to be used as the indicator of the unacceptable indoor air quality, a marker of our, uh, indoor air quality, and uh, and it it is used uh, uh, until he, until today like this. Of course, there has been also a lot of research on CO2 at the, um, for the toxic reasons. So I, I don't want to go into detail, but there have been a lot of studies looking at what levels the CO2 is toxic for humans. And uh, if we look through this research, uh, we see that uh, these are levels which are far above the exposure levels that we see indoors. And uh, if you look at the occupational uh, guidelines, we see the, the recommended uh, the guideline value at 5,000 ppm, which is uh, seldom uh, measured uh, indoors. And it, this is an exposure that can last for eight hours during the working day to carbon dioxide, and it's not considered to produce any toxic on effects on humans or harmful effects on humans and 30,000 is a stall value so it's very very high levels hardly ever you know experience never probably 30,000 is never experienced in those probably unless you have a source of uh, carbon dioxide so co2 in the beginning in the early years was considered to be uh, a pollutant and then um, uh, since Pettenkofer, so since 19th century, it has been considered uh, merely as a marker of indoor air quality. Um, sometimes, you know, erroneously used uh, because it basically only can be considered as the marker of indoor air quality if we have humans indoors. 
Uh, without humans, I mean, there is no source of carbon dioxide. So, you know, the levels of carbon dioxide can be as low as the outdoor level, which does not mean that the exposure levels or the pollutant levels are, at, you know, at low concentrations, with, which do not cause uh, negative effects or harmful effects on humans. I'm curious, okay. with respect to the military and the U.S. military, you know, early on we put people in submarines and they were obviously creating, you know, high levels of CO2. Uh, was there much research? I'm sure they did research on it, but can you comment on what they found? I was not able to find any. I know that there has been some research that showed that, you know, the bones uh, um, of these marines that were staying long in the submarines were, you know, uh, softer. Hmm. And, uh, but I, you know, I was not able or, you know, sorry for, you know, if I missed some studies, but uh, uh, I was not able to see any, you know, studies that show negative effects of the exposures in the submarines. You know, in a snorkel submarine, we would expect the um, levels of less than a 3,000 ppm. Uh, uh, and the, in the nuclear uh, submarine, we, we would expect uh, a the levels of uh, about, uh, you know, um, what is it? Uh, sorry, in the uh, snorkel submarines, about uh, below 30,000 ppm, and then in the nuclear submarines, below 10,000 uh, ppm, uh, maybe 7,000 ppm. So higher than what is recommended for the... Um, uh, a, uh, a, a occupational limit. Hmm. You would think that, you know, these are people with nuclear weapons and, you know, they've got lives in their hands. I mean, you would think if there was good research to indicate their performance was jeopardized by, you know, high levels of CO2, the military would be pretty concerned about that. But I, I like you, I've never seen much research that... Um, or even any reference to research right. that talks about that. Yeah, we, we will be talking uh, in a moment about the studies which show, you know, the, the effects of carbon dioxide at much, much lower levels than, than occur uh, uh, um, in submarines and actually levels uh, that cause uh, effects on decision-making. So basically, in a battle situation in a submarine, you have to take decisions, right? And, uh, you know, high level of CO2 would probably um, reduce your ability to take the right decisions, right? So, um, well, um, it is probably a different situation. And also, you know, it has always, I, it, I was always wondering why, you know, why we do not see any effects in the submarine. But remember that, you know, people, well, the Marines are specially selected, and especially officers, you know, the, um, the ones which are in charge of the submarine. You know, these are people after a very, very long training. So they are able to control, you know, somehow maybe everything, uh, maybe including a little bit of their physiology and, uh, you know, how they feel and... Uh, so they can maybe overrule, the, if there is a negative effect, they may overrule it or combat it uh, in this uh, very, very stressful situation, which is a battle. So right. the fact that we do not see those effects there in submarine does not rule, rule out the possibility that, that the effect can occur, but they basically are able to, you know, combat it. Yeah, through either processes or training or having people that are, uh, exactly. you know... Uh, exactly. They are especially selected people for yep. this type of job. I see. Well, let's go to... Um, there was 2012 paper, uh, Is CO2 an Indoor Pollutant Direct Effects of Low to Moderate CO2 Concentrations on Human Decision-Making and Performance? And this was... Uh, 
a paper that, um, well, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about that paper? A couple of the authors have been on the show. We had Mark Mandel, Bill Fisk, I, Yusha Satish, I'm not familiar with, but maybe you could tell people a little bit more about that paper. You know, these are very recognized uh, scientists. Uh, you know, Bill, Bill Fisk and Mark Mantel, uh you know, these are the the persons, you, you know, that you, when you look through the literature on IAQ, you will find, you know, their names on the very significant publications. So uh, I know the full story, and probably Bill Fisk uh, told you the story earlier on the show. If not, maybe I can uh, tell uh, a story. So Bill got fascinated by the uh, two things. Um, he got fascinated by um, uh, by the uh, um, uh, measuring battery for performance that uh, was uh, introduced by Usha Satish. And... Um, uh, Bill Fisk uh, has been looking at the literature on the effects of indoor environmental uh, quality on performance, and uh, most of this literature is um, basically uh, using uh, a simple uh, cognitive task to measure uh, performance of people. So he was looking for more sophisticated uh, way of measuring performance, and he got fascinated by the uh, battery that uh, was presented by USHA. At the same time, he found uh, two papers that were published in Hungarian scientific journal, in English, actually, which um, reported uh, effects of uh, carbon dioxide on a human performance. So um, at the levels of about 4,000 ppm, th those, those studies are not very systematic, but nevertheless, it Somehow, Bill got interested in the, in the, in the topic. So what they did is, uh, having receiving a, a large funding from the uh, California EPA, I believe, or DOE, I'm not sure, um, uh, they decided to run uh, a small experiment in which they would look at the effect of a pure carbon dioxide on the um, cognitive performance measured with the Satish uh, uh, battery. And the Satish battery is the um, sort of a unique uh, method of measuring performance because it, it looks at the, um, uh, it measures the, um, how capable we are, or how able we are to take decision on this stressful situation. So we basically challenged with um, some situations, say we can be um, uh, in charge of the, uh, uh, of evacuating people from the town or maybe evacuating people from the building and so on and so on, and then we have to take decisions. And uh, those decisions are then somehow measured by the software and then transferred into the measurable, uh, you know, some numbers that uh, mean something, you know, uh, in terms of the uh, cognitive performance. So what they did is they had uh, 22 subjects and then they exposed them to the... Um, uh, two levels of elevated levels of carbon dioxide. Um, so they had a reference condition in which the level of carbon dioxide was um, more or less similar to the outdoor level, slightly above that. Uh, it was about 600 ppm. And then they had two elevated levels, 1000 ppm and 2500 ppm. So um, uh, in each of these conditions, they had a very, very high ventilation rate in the exposure chamber so that any type of bio uh, pollutants that would be produced by the people present or the subjects that were exposed or any type of a material that is inside the chamber would be diluted to the insignificant levels. And they actually confirmed that with the chemical measurements that you know they had a very, very low background levels of pollutants. So the dominant pollutant in those ex exposure studies were, uh, was uh, carbon dioxide. So again, they exposed it to 1,000 and 2,500 ppm. And what they saw is a systematic reduction in the performance on the ability to take decisions by the subjects. And it was across, they, they defined nine different measures of the um, 
defining uh, the, uh, the decision-making process from a, a measures that uh, reflect a, uh, a low cognitive demand to the uh, measures that uh, require high cognitive demand, and except perhaps one or two measures, for all of them they have seen systematic aggravation of disability. And uh, they saw it at 1,000 ppm, and, uh, uh, but it was not statistically significant. And then when at 2,500 ppm, they actually um, uh, saw it a statistically significant uh, effect, which means that they cannot exclude it, uh, that this is a, a random effect. And, uh, but if you look at the data, it's basically a very systematic. So there is an effect at 1,000 ppm and then 2,000 ppm. So, so this is it was really um, a sort of a nice, an eye opener and sort of like, you know, um, strike of a thunder, you know, uh, uh, you know, or whatever. For many uh, researchers, it's, oh, come on, maybe uh, when we we consider the carbon dioxide as the uh, indicator of the air quality, but maybe CO2 is actually uh, a pollutant itself, and it may be causing some negative uh, effects on performance. For that particular, you know, battery uh, of tests that were uh, uh, presented for the subjects, and um, I must say, when I read the paper uh, for the first time, I was struck by, you know, uh, by by how well the study was de designed. There's basically you you cannot you know object anything in the design, and you cannot object anything in the results. It's very very clear and straightforward effect. So this is why it probably uh, was so much got so much attraction, you know, by uh, in, in the uh, uh, in the field. And I think it it led to other studies as well. And and what we're going to do is we're going to break for halftime now and uh, stop and thank our sponsors. And then when we come back, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about the paper that came out of Harvard, and then two papers that uh, your group put out. Uh, not long ago, in 2016, I believe. So we'll be back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Paul Wagarki in about 90 seconds. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Powell Wagarki on the line. I, I, Got a quick um, just clarification on the first study we just discussed, uh, Satish Mendel et al. Um, they did not, if I recall correctly, did not look at health outcomes, just performance. Is that correct? Well, um, they are not reporting health outcomes, yes. Okay. In the paper. All right. So we, we, we don't uh, know uh, what was the... Um, well, actually, we don't know um, uh, anything about that. So they only look at the uh, performance outcomes. Yes, uh, I'll report them uh, in the paper. So the, the next paper we wanted to talk about is uh, in 2015, associations of cognitive function scores with carbon dioxide, ventilation, and volatile organic compound exposures in office workers, a controlled exposure study of green and conventional office environments. This was uh, Joe Allen, uh, Pierce McNaughton, Usha Satish again, and a couple others, including John Spengler. Can you talk to listeners about 
that particular study, give them a little overview, just like you did with the first one, and, and talk a little bit about the results? Well, yes. Um, it just to your comment, it, it, it will be very nice to see whether there have been any effects on the health outcomes, of course, because it would let us, with some explanations of the effects that we see, Unfortunately, we could not see that. Um, as for the second study, so it is a sort of a replication uh, of the uh, study of Satish, Mendel, and Fisk, and, and not only a replication, but it's also an extension to the uh, to their study. So um, they uh, so they included not only the uh, they looked at uh, not only the effects of carbon dioxide but also looked at the effects of other pollutants uh, uh, on the um, uh, cognitive performance and the cognitive performance measured using the same battery of tests so again we are talking about the um, decision making performance or the ability to take decisions as measured with the battery uh, that uh, was uh, uh, used in other, you know, medical research uh, from which, you know, USHA uh, is coming, USHA Satish is coming. So what they did is they had a, you know, I saw the facilities actually. I didn't, I didn't have ch a chance to see the facilities of the first study, but I uh, saw the facilities and they are existing actually still in Syracuse, uh, Center of Excellence uh, in their building, uh, the facilities of the second study. So they have a, they have an office like you know the chamber so basically what they have is a, um, a room with cubicles and uh, they can actually put people uh, in there and they, they can perform a work like in the ordinary office you know space and each of the cubicle uh, is ventilated by the local ventilation it's the underflow ventilation so basically you know you can easily control the conditions in each cubicle it, it's very important, maybe, uh, information because if you think about cubicle, you always cubicles, you always think about the air distribution and how the air is provided and whether everyone is receiving the same, you know, exposure or the same air, basically, and so on, so on. Mm -hmm. In their study, actually, each person received a similar exposure because you know they they received the same air from the underfloor uh, outlet, you know, and. Um, so what they did is they had this 24 people, and then you know they invited them to participate in, in, in the experiment, which lasted six days, and they basically uh, they performed their work, uh, normal work, and uh, in this uh, facility for eight hours in six days experiments, and then each day they were exposed uh, to different conditions, and. Uh, Two of them were two different levels of carbon dioxide, and then uh, they uh, uh, at towards the end of the day. So they were working there for eight hours with one hour break for lunch. Towards the end of the uh, working day, they were again uh, 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 presented the uh, battery of tests, and uh, they performed this battery of tests as in the first study. And uh, uh, also, uh, the design here was a beautiful design uh, of the Harvard group. It's really, you know, it, it should be, you know, presented to many people who plan to do the similar research. What they did also is that the first exposure that pe that the subject or the people that were recruited for the study uh, uh, they experienced was repeated uh, also uh, towards the end of the last exposure, just to see whether the responses are the same or not. Hmm. So what they found is similar effects as a uh, as uh, the Satish uh, Mendel Fisker effect. Here they have, you know, the eight-hour exposure. So they, this is an extension to that. And uh, and at the levels, uh, if I remember well, below 1,000 ppm. So at even lower, slightly lower levels uh, of carbon dioxide that have been seen in, in the first paper. So it is basically a replication of uh, a, the um, first study, extension, you know, to the longer, you know, uh, exposure. And uh, uh, again, uh, you know, different group of people, you know, different experimental uh, team, 
and again, uh, you know, uh, slightly lower levels of carbon dioxide. Hmm. The only diff the only thing that uh, is probably not the uh, which is uh, uh, which we have to look at is that they used exactly the same battery of tests, so they did not, you know, use a, another type of task or another way of measuring performance. So uh, they basically used the same battery as in the first study. So basically, this study re, re or confirmed the first. So I mean, now we have a two two experiments that uh, have the same result, uh, showing that carbon dioxide uh, may be should be maybe should be considered as a pollutant, uh, especially as regards the uh, the cognitive performance. Okay, interesting. Now. Okay. Let's let's move forward to 2016 and the papers that your group put together here. We've got Zhang, Wargaki, and uh, Theragod. I hope I pronounced that properly. Uh, oh, and Leon. Yes. And is that... Yes, thank you. Uh, uh, so, if you mention that, who yeah. is that group? Okay, so, um, so uh, I was very much interested in, in the first study of... Uh, Fisk, Mendel, and Satish, and uh, I promised myself, and also promised Bill Fisk, that uh, we, we would like to repeat the experiment uh, that they performed, and they, of course, they applauded to it, because it's, uh, it's a good uh, idea always to repeat the study. So, uh, for years, I've been trying to find some uh, funding for that. It's not easy to find funding for this type of work, unless you have uh, generous sponsors, you know, uh, and uh, Bill and uh, the, their group in California, they had a very, very generous funding. And then also the Harvard group got a very, very generous funding. So they were lucky. And I was trying to look uh, some um, for, for, for grant. And it was very difficult for me unless uh, un until the moment that I applied for the local funding in Denmark. Here in uh, the university, we can apply for a small funding that uh, is basically from the uh, small grants from the uh, uh, foundation that was set up by one of the uh, employees of our institute. So he was a book collector, and after he died, actually, some of the money that he collected over the years in books, you know, were converted into the uh, foundation, and then now. There are grants given for, a, I believe, Alzheimer's disease. This is the disease that he died of, and then, and also for the research, for the researchers or the employees of the my institute. Hmm. I'm at the Department of Civil Engineering, so this is I was able to get some money for it, and then I had collaboration with the Jiao Tong University and group there in China, in Shanghai, and I was able to attract a PhD student, uh, this is the main author of those papers, to come to Denmark and, uh, and perform the work. So she was, so it's coincidence, you know, all the lucky coincidence, she was able to get the uh, PhD scholarship from China, so she came to our group and performed uh, uh, the work in our chambers. And I was able to pay for the uh, expenses uh, uh, that uh, were in relation to the experiments. The other two authors, uh, Teregard, she is uh, she's a biostatistician who helped us in the analysis, and Lian uh, is the professor at the uh, Jiaotong University. I see. Uh, the professor of uh, Xiaojing Zhang, uh, the main author. So this is a little bit of history for that. So um, I got the money, and uh, we decided to um, replicate the study of um, Fisk, uh, Mendel, and Satish uh, in our chambers. We have a facilities. We have actually 12 environmental chambers, and we have very unique facilities. Some of our facilities, you know, are stainless steel chambers, which has uh, very, very low levels of uh, pollutants uh, inside. And we decided to make an experiment in such chamber although we would prefer to make it in the um, ordinary office, to just reduce the levels of pollutants. And uh, we also uh, wanted to use the same battery of tests 
as in uh, the study of uh, uh, Harvard study and the Fisk study or Satish study. But uh, the cost, uh, you know, it was too high for us uh, for using this battery, so we decided uh, to use our own battery of uh, performance test. So what we did is basically we uh, exposed uh, human subjects to um, two elevated level of carbon dioxide. Uh, again, we used uh, 1,000 ppm, and then we went up above the level that was uh, studied by Fisk and Mandel and Satish to 3,000 ppm. <coughs> then we thought maybe we should also look on whether, you know, um, uh, the, the carbon dioxide is produced by humans. Uh, very seldom is, you know, it's never appearing itself without any presence of any other pollutants. So then we, we were thinking, what if we just um, also exposed our subjects to human bioeffluents, uh, including the carbon dioxide that is produced by people, you know, uh, to the same levels? And just to see whether we would see uh, stronger effects because there are other pollutants or maybe the similar effects as we would expect to see, you know, with carbon dioxide. So uh, our um, uh, experimental matrix looked like this. We had a reference condition, uh, so uh, low level of carbon dioxide, high ventilation rate. And then to this, we added carbon dioxide to elevate the carbon dioxide. It was just artificial carbon dioxide from the cylinder, like in the other studies, to elevate it to 1,000 and 3,000 ppm. And then what we did is we supplemented those two with the elevated levels of carbon dioxide, but with human bioeffluence. So uh, um, we basically reduced the ventilation rate in the chamber to elevate the levels of the carbon dioxide and bioeffluents in the chamber produced by the subjects sitting in the chamber to the, exactly the same levels of 1,000 and 3,000 ppm. So now we have a matrix. I mean, we have a pure CO2 and CO2 together with bioeffluents. And we have uh, similar exposure lengths, actually maybe a little bit longer than uh, in the first study, and then different types of uh, cognitive tasks that uh, people uh, perform. We, we have a psychological test, uh, the test that are normally used by psychologists to test, you know, different skills, cognitive skills, like, you know, memory, like concentration, like reaction time. And then we have tasks that we usually perform, or used to perform at least, in our, uh, at our work, at least two of them, a proofreading and the uh, proofreading of the text, and maybe and text typing, we still type, and we still from time to time proofread the text that we type. But on top of it, we had some uh, arithmetical calculations. So we are not able to do the um, basically um, similar uh, uh, exposed subjects to uh, or present the same uh, cognitive tasks as uh, in other studies. And then we supplemented the measurements with, you know, subjectively assessed, you know, um, health symptoms, acute health symptoms. So we were asking subjects at any of the conditions whether they experienced any symptoms, such as whether they had problems with, con with concentration or maybe they had some irritation and so on and so on. And also we measured their uh, physiological responses. Simple measurements, you know, of blood pressure, you know, heart rate and skin temperature, and also we measured the biomarkers in saliva, amylase and cortisol, just to see, to get a little bit of informa more information than the other studies and maybe try to figure out are there any, you know, mechanisms behind why is it that we see the effects of carbon dioxide. Try, hmm. Trying to understand the... Uh, the, what is going on, right? Because, as you said, I mean, you know, why is it that carbon dioxide is causing those uh, dramatic effects on uh, cognitive performance? So, and results, right? Yes. And what, <laughs> did, what did you find? I mean... So, um, that's, yes, there may be some questions from, if you have, but I can go to the results immediately. Let's do that. Let's do that. Okay, so, to our surprise, we haven't seen effects of carbon dioxide, uh, similar to what has been seen in the other two studies. 
So neither at 1,000 ppm or 3,000 ppm uh, we, we saw any you know effects on of carbon dioxide on a, a cognitive performance of the type of tests and tasks that were performed by the subject. These were different than in the other two studies, but we have to uh, emphasize it several times. And we, we haven't seen any you know indication either in the subjective responses of subjects or subjective ratings uh, that there were any negative effects of the exposure of carbon dioxide. So basically, in reported intensity of sim acute health symptoms was unchanged by the elevated levels of carbon dioxide. Air quality was unchanged. And carbon dioxide is otherwise, so we would not even expect that there would be any effect on the perceived air quality. But when, when they were exposed to human bioeffluence with carbon dioxide, what we saw was the, um, uh, uh, we saw that, that they responded to this exposure, already at 1,000 and maybe even more at 3,000 ppm. And the response was with the aggravated air quality as perceived by them, and then uh, also they reported increased uh, in intensity uh, of symptoms related to the, um, uh, we call them general symptoms, so neurobehavioral symptoms, such as, you know, difficulty to concentrate, or fatigue, and so on. And also few, not all, but few of the uh, uh, performance tests, or the performance on few of the tasks that they uh, performed uh, was also uh, 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 affected by the elevated levels of uh, human bioeffluence uh, together with carbon dioxide. But this has not been seen for the pure carbon dioxide. Hmm. So There have been also some physiological responses, but I want to go into details. The most important was that we were not able to see the similar effects of carbon dioxide as in the other two studies. But we saw the effects when uh, carbon dioxide was present together with human bioeffluence. And those effects probably could be attributed to the other you know, pollutants emitted by humans rather than the carbon dioxide. What, but what? The, 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 the role of carbon dioxide is difficult to explain, and we cannot explain that. Yes, Joe, you, you have a question. Well, I was just wondering what, you know, what kind of feedback have you gotten since publishing, you know, your, your papers, um, I would imagine there's a lot of questions. Uh, do you, what kind of questions are you getting from other researchers? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, there are people who, uh, you know, you know, we have a lot of questions here. And they, the question is uh, why we do not see the results. Uh, the, the, why do not we do not see effects of carbon dioxide? Why why we cannot repeat the, the similar effects as the other two groups? You know uh, how you know is this you know are, are the other are results you know uh, uh, should there be you know, are there very strong results? I mean uh, is, is, uh, are the weak you know what is the weakness of those results? What are the limitations of the results? So in response to the latter. You know, we uh, what we did is we um, exposed uh, people to the level of 5,000 ppm. You know, we elevated carbon dioxide, so we have supplemental supplementary study on a smaller a smaller group of subjects where we increase the level of carbon dioxide, and again we could not you know see any effects on the same battery of tests. And the questions were also whether the the difference that we see is not maybe related to the method of testing, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, of the cognitive performance. And, um, and actually, probably this is where, what, where, it, it, where it is all about. I mean, probably the method that we used for testing of cognitive performance in uh, our study and in the other studies leads to the difference between the two um, um, experiment, experiments, I would say. Uh, yeah, I guess that uh, makes sense because... Approach. A lot of the earlier, I mean, none of the none of the earlier studies before 2012 would have used what I think you referred to as the Satish battery of, uh, you yep. know, testing on on trying to determine performance. 
they were used in the medical uh, research and for the people with, you know, people who are drug addicts or maybe uh, who overuse alcohol and so on and so on. And, the, and this battery was seen to be sensitive to that. Uh, this battery was not used in the context of indoor air uh, uh, and indoor air quality. So very, you know, weak exposures or very weak stressors, actually, compared to the so the other very very significant, uh, you know, stressors such as you know, you know, drug addict addiction, you know, or maybe uh, something like that. So um, the only work that has been used with Satish was in relation to I think the painters who are exposed to the paint during painting, and then they have seen. So you can think about you know. Freshly remodeled or freshly painted house, you know, in which you know people are exposed, or maybe office workers move into the freshly renovated office, and then you know they probably have a high exposure to the pollutants emitted from the uh, paints uh, that are used, and so on, and so on. And then they were able to show the uh, negative effects of those exposures on the, uh, the on the battery of tests that they presented. But other than that, no, uh, not, none of us were uh, aware actually of this battery, and uh, uh, we were not using it. Uh, uh, so this is a sort of a weakness of of their approach because the battery has a very little connection to the, uh, the the real life. You know, we really don't know whether the effects that are seen. Uh, on the battery, how they translate to the actual normal work performance, I would say. So, uh, I mean, you know, what we see there, how it translates, is it the same magnitude or is it a less magnitude and how well they can represent or simulate a normal office work. The same, actually, argument or the same criticism can be put to basically also our battery of tests. Nevertheless, we usually try to expose people or have people or subject people to the, the, the tests that they are familiar with, you know, is something mm -hmm. that they would normally do and uh, normally practice. So We're, we're running a little and, uh, over. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, let, right. me, let me give you a quick... So, basically... Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm talking too much. Sorry. No, no, that's Please. fine. All right, let me... Let me do a quick, if you've got another five minutes, we, we got a little start, uh, late sure, start. Sure, I have plenty of time, no problem. All right. No. There's a couple of questions I, I pulled off of your presentation from IAQA. They have nice, you know, short answers to them, and I think we can go through about five questions real quick that will kind of help summarize this. Um, first, um, does archival literature indicate that CO2 is toxic? It does. So CO2 is toxic. And it's but uh, it's toxic at the levels that are one order of magnitude higher than typically occurring indoors. Okay. So and basically, at, at the levels that are indoors, you, would, you could hardly expect, you know, toxic, the same toxic effects from CO2. Okay. And does CO2 create risks for building occupants? So... Our answer to that is no, but, you know, there is a caveat uh, to that. Is there is one thing, is that unless they perform very demanding cognitive tasks, so it's because of the work of the two groups in California and in Harvard, which shows that at the very highly demanding tasks, when we are talking about taking decisions and highly cognitive demanding uh, performance, at these levels, at, uh, when you perform this type of work, perhaps carbon dioxide can be uh, can have a negative effect. Should ventilation standards be changed based on recent studies on the effects of CO2? No, I mean, uh, why they should be? Uh, basically, um, they do show that CO2 is an excellent proxy for the potential negative effects, you know, and then... There is no need, uh, reason to change the ventilation requirements. I mean, the ventilation requirements, uh, if properly, of course, uh, implemented indoors, they would uh, keep the CO2 level at maybe 1,000 ppm and even less than this. 
These are the levels that are seen in the offices. I mean, less than 1,800 ppm, at okay. which probably the levels that, that the negative effects of CO2 would not be seen unless we perform the demanding task. Yes. What about human bioaffluence? It seems like that's one area where we could do a little more study, um, separating out the effects of CO2 versus bioaffluence. Is there any other way besides ventilation to lower exposures to bioaffluence? Today, probably not. But uh, we need to use our brain and develop the uh, innovative solutions uh, of the some sort of a local control of the human bioaffluence. You could think about, you know, there are studies now uh, that uh, um, I know of uh, looking at the ventilated chairs, for example, be being, uh, you know, and we know that there are ventilated chairs in cars which remove bioaffluence basically at the spot, you know, at the source. I see. So, um, now today, basically general ventilation. So what is the issue about the bioaffluence like this? If we reduce exposure to any other pollutants, then the bioaffluence become dominant pollutants. And this is why we should start looking back into the effects of bioaffluence, because uh, there is a trend, at least in Europe, to reduce pollutants or emissions from uh, other sources of pollution. And now we don't have tobacco smoking, right? And then building materials which are less emitted, le less emitting, and these are organic, you know, and then uh, <clears throat> green materials, you know, emitting less, and then suddenly the human becomes really uh, a major, a dominant source. And we have very little information on whether this is an issue. I mean, do, will bioaffluence produce negative effects on us? And that, that we have very little information about. And let me turn it over to my co-host, Cliff Zlotnick. I know you've got a question. No, no, I said I had none. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Okay. I, I, I didn't read that properly. I'm, all right, before we go, I've got two more questions. One is, um, so we, we titled this show, Is CO2 a Pollutant or Merely an Index for Indoor Air Quality? And that was the title of your presentation at the IAQA oh. conference. So what's the answer? I, I would lean towards the latter part of that. It's merely an index of IAQ, for oh. IAQ. Okay. It can the be. The issue about carbon dioxide is, yeah, so... Uh, I don't think it is a pollutant, uh, and um, even if it is, I think we, we should think about all the other pollutants as well. So, I think it should not, you know, sort of make up make us blind to all the other pollutants that are present in those. And only talking about carbon dioxide as a pollutant would basically mean that we can ignore all the other, we or we can forget about the, all the other pollutants that are in those that we also need to deal with. Uh, but I do not see any toxicological evidence that at the levels in those CO2 is a pollutant. So uh, it is an excellent uh, uh, index for indoor air quality when people are indoors. Okay. Have you... I, we had um, a show not long ago with uh, Dr. Nuno Cajan from Portugal, and he had looked at some... Uh, CO2 levels while people were sleeping, and um, I know that here in the States, a lot of people button up their bedroom, and, you know, especially in the winter when we're trying not to use a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of energy. Um, are you aware of any good research that shows that maybe high levels of CO2 affect sleep patterns? We, we have only one study that actually was produced uh, I'm one of the authors of that, which looked at the, um, the uh, negative effects of poorer quality, uh, meaning elevated levels of human bioaffluence, or poor ventilation, basically, on sleep uh, quality. And we do show that the um, poorer quality or reduced ventilation uh, can produce, uh, uh, can have negative effects on our sleep quality, and it even can affect our next day performance. We don't have evidence or information. I, I'm not aware of, of the effects of pure carbon dioxide or just carbon dioxide on uh, the sleep quality. But, Joe, we can meet probably in a year 
from today, and I will have this information, because we are just about to start experiments together with Aarhus University, who is the principal investor. Aarhus, Aarhus is another town in, in Denmark at the university, which we uh, start an experiment in which we would expose children at the school age, eight, age probably eight to ten, will be sleeping uh, in an environment in which there will be elevated carbon dioxide and elevated bioeffluent. And we want to see whether uh, sleeping in such environments have negative effects on their quality of sleep and the next day performance. It's very important. They go to school next day. You know, they need to be ready for schooling, you know, and then if it does affect, you know, it may have significant in, uh, uh, implications on how we ventilate our bedrooms. Well, we this is really, un, you know, unresearched territory, the sleep. You know, we spend one third of our life sleeping and we know very little how the entire environment affects our sleep quality. I look forward to having you back. One of the topics for the future. Yes, I'd yeah. love, to, love to do that. Before we go, is there anything you'd like to add, anything we missed, um, anything at all? Not really. I mean, we have to remember that, you know, carbon dioxide outdoors is increasing and increasing very, very much. Uh, you know, uh, over the last uh, 10, 20 years, it's uh, increased by about 60 ppm. So it's actually important. So the uh, numbers that are used for, you know, uh, CO2 as the indicator of the IQ should be somehow controlled or adjusted for that increase in carbon dioxide outdoors. Other than that, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, I didn't want to take a position on, you know, on, and say, you know, which of the studies are good or bad. I think all of the work that is presented is very, very consistent, very nice, and very, very good research. And we still have this debate. I mean, the still debate is why is it that the, the effects are seen in some of the studies uh, of CO2, in some of the studies, and in other studies and they are not seen. So that, that is a question, you know, that probably we will have more answers to that when we meet next time. And if, if we didn't have uh, different study results, then it wouldn't be as much fun. <laughs> That's correct. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's great to have you Thank as a guest. Uh, Dr. Paul Wargaki, uh, calling much. from the Technical University it. of Denmark. Thank you very much. I hope to see you again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Joe. All right, you. you're welcome. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks again to this week's guest, Dr. Paul Wargaki, uh, Wargaki out of the uh, University of Denmark, the Technical University of Denmark. We were talking a lot about CO2, bioaffluent, and indoor air quality. Great stuff. Um, we'll be taking a, a little break next Friday for the uh, holiday weekend, but uh, we're going to play a really good flashback show also want to thank my co-host the z-man cliff zlotnick at the controls john you gotta have faith most importantly our growing group of loyal listeners will be back live in two weeks we'll still do a flashback show next week with the next episodes of iaq radio for iaq radio i'm spike real saying thanks for listening